Preaching can be admittedly difficult, even in the best of circumstances. The message feels too big. The messenger feels too unworthy. The burden just too great. But Jeremiah is asked to preach a sermon that no one will listen to. Listen to what God says at the end of the chapter. Jeremiah, we just read his sermon, this temple sermon, but, but in the rest of the chapter, God speaks to Jeremiah, and this is what he tells him in verse 27. You can see it there in your Bibles. When you tell them all of this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Jeremiah is sent to preach a message that will change nothing. No one will respond, and yet he stands in the gateway of the temple and preaches to God. He's sent, we see in the the opening verses of our chapter, he's sent by God to to preach to those that that pretend to come in for worship, outwardly going through the the religious rituals. He's sent by God to to take this message. Look at verse 3. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. He gives his his sermon proposition right at the beginning, probably a sermon he had to repeat again and again throughout the day because he's at a gate where people pass by. He's the street preacher saying the same message of warning again and again. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live, declares the Lord. And so as we, as we look at Jeremiah's temple sermon, these first 15 verses of our chapter, we'll, we'll see how he exposes Judah's sinful thinking, their sinful actions, and their sinful history. Look at, look at verse 4 as he exposes their, their sinful thinking. He says, Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Judah, the people of God, have a false temple theology. It's admittedly not, not very complicated. They just repeat that phrase, perhaps as a, as a religious mantra, but, it, but it's, it's showing the simplicity of their thoughts. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. That's, that's all they have. They, they have a, the promises of God given to them that the sons of David would reign on a throne forever, that God would dwell in their midst in the temple, but they are watching the sons of David be slaughtered. Josiah is the last of the good kings that, it, that, that the nation of Judah will see. His sons are evil. His grandson who gets on the throne is evil. And yet, they're not putting their, their trust in, in kings or in the military because they've been defeated, but, but they say as long as this building here the one, I'm entering through the gate to go worship God here. As long as this building is here, then I know we stand secure. Because God made a, a promise that he's going to stay here forever. They are, they are presuming upon the grace of God. They're saying, God chose us, therefore, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what happens. The temple is here. But this is a a false confidence in outward religion. 
They're saying if I show up and go through the, the rituals of temple sacrifice, that's all that matters. I just need a veneer of, of goodness to pace over my empty life. If I show up here, the temple is my hope. But, but what, they're, what they're misunderstanding is that God's presence, God's presence is pure grace. God is in their midst, not because they deserve it, but because God is gracious and loving and caring. But they've placed a false confidence in the, the temple. And so, so here's the warning. Being in church today will not save you. Being here every time the doors are unlocked will not save you. Being here early to be the one who unlocks the doors will not save you. Standing in the pulpit and preaching the gospel will not save you. Going through the outward motions of religion will not save you. And actually, here, it keeps God at a, dis at a distance. And the temple is meant to be the, the, the place where God dwells with his people. This is the house of the Lord. This is where God comes down and is in the midst of his people. He is there in all of his power and holiness and glory to meet with his people. And yet they've turned it into this facade, this structure, and say, as long as I've got that, that's all I need. I don't need God. I just need the shell of religion. And they're presuming here upon God's divine election. And as, as Presbyterians, we, perhaps among all Christians, pride ourselves on the clarity of our theology, on the, the, the weight upon which we, we put the, the, the importance of God's providence and God's power and God's election. And, and those are good and beautiful doctrines until we begin to assume that they're ours because of our goodness, because of how smart we are, because of how good our theology is. And the temple provided access to God, but, but here it is becoming a barrier. When wrongly used, it keeps God's people from God's presence. And in our false, if you make the wrong assumption, it can be costly. If you make the assumption that, that if I just go through the motions, if I'm just good enough, if, I, if I'm just at church enough, that'll be enough to save me. If, if you make the wrong assumption, it will be costly. A few years ago, I remember reading the, the news story. It was, it was that, that period in which we were, we were getting lots of reports about Somali pirates attacking freighters. And so in 2012, a, a group of Somali pirates attacked what they thought was a freighter, but it turned out to be the, the SPS Patino, a warship of the Spanish Navy. And so this warship was easily able to repel these pirates in their little dinghy, and then dispatch helicopters to capture them. Because if you make the assumption that, that well, if I just go about my plan, if I go about it this way, if, if you're wrong, the consequences can be huge. And so if you're wrong about this idea of what does it take to get to God, if you do what Judah did, and you just show up at the temple, regardless of, of and you just go through the motions, if, if you just show up here, and remember, Jeremiah is preaching to the worshipers. He's standing at, he's, he's not going out after the people who never show up here. He's, he's standing at the gate of the temple and saying, actually, you're the people who get it wrong if you 
show up and think that just the ritual, just the motions, just your attendance, because at root, it's really the, the sin of, of selfish autonomy, of saying, I don't need God. I can handle this. I've got my checklist. Be a good enough person. Show up at church frequently enough, and I'll handle it. And instead of the temple being a place where God's presence, where, where the people see God's presence, they in their sinful thinking have rebelled against God. Their sinful thinking leads, as Jeremiah's sermon makes clear, to sinful action. The, the people in verse 4 say their, their theology is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And so God responds to them with three ifs. You've got your, your theology. God says in verses 5 and 6, if you really change your ways... Verse 6, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. And again in verse 6, if you do not follow other gods, then I will let you live in this place. Because the people are, the, the, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's message is, yes, you come as a sinner, but when you receive God's grace, your life should change. We have a, a come-as-you-are theology. We want you to show up here today out of all of the mess that you brought with you. But we don't want to have a leave-as-you-are theology. We expect when, when you hear the gospel that you will endeavor, by God's grace, to change. See, the people are assuming it doesn't matter what they do on the, on the outside in the rest of their lives. They can, they can just show up at the temple and presume upon God's grace. He'll, he'll, of course, just dispense it out to them because they showed up. And, it, and it's not only confined to them showing up here at the, at the temple. We, we see in verses 16 through 19, this is taking place in the rest of their lives. So this is after Jeremiah concludes his sermon, but, but then God turns and speaks to Jeremiah in verses 16 and following. And he describes the, the people in the streets of Jerusalem. Look at verse 18. The, the children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods and provoke me to anger. They're worshiping the goddesses of the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. They have a, they have a, they'll worship the queen of heaven, this false goddess. And then walk to the temple and pretend to worship the true God. And, and, and look at, look at how, how their, their sins begin to just pile up in this sermon. Look at verse 9. Jeremiah says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then verse 10, And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name? There are, there are six sins listed there. In verse 9, they are six of the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal, the Eighth Commandment. You shall not murder, the Sixth Commandment. You shall not commit adultery, the Seventh Commandment. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not perjure yourself, the Ninth Commandment. Don't offer incense to Baal. You shall not bow down to other gods or worship them, the Second Commandment. You shall not follow other gods. You shall have no other gods before me, the First Commandment. These aren't little sins. And, and actually, some commentators point out the fact that, that 
the other commandments are all piled into this chapter as well. They're not honoring their fathers and mothers when they gather together in family worship and worship a goddess. They're not keeping the Sabbath holy when they show up in, in presumption upon God's grace. They're, they're coveting the things of the nations when they chase after their gods. All of the commandments are broken. And, and remember, we saw last week, as, as Tom was reminding us from Jeremiah's preaching, that, that sin is not simply breaking God's commandments. Sin is more than that. Sin is breaking God's heart. It's, these, these commandments are all built on our relationship with God. If we say that God is the only true God, then we'll humble ourselves. We'll follow him. And yet, these sins aren't just ancient sins. Verse 9 is a verse that, that speaks to, to our own hearts as well. Will you steal? Jeremiah asks. And yet we as people are motivated by greed. So we gather things to make our lives happy and fulfilled to give us pleasure. We steal from the poor by ignoring, ignoring the needs of the alien, the fatherless, the widow. We steal from God by, by holding back resources to keep us safe rather than investing them in God's mission. We have two men in our congregation ready to go now. Now. The only thing slowing the process is the money in the pockets of God's people. Will you murder? Jeremiah asks. Yet we live in a culture where we tolerate the slaughter of innocent lives. And we ourselves harbor hatred in our hearts for those who have harmed us. We refuse to forgive. And yet, we paste a smile on our faces and wander into church like everything's fine. Will you commit adultery, Jeremiah asks. Yes, we lament the, the sexual promiscuity of our culture, and yet we let our own thoughts, our own eyes, wander. You cast aside the biblical demands of sexual purity because that just feels like too much. That God is a killjoy. You think God doesn't really care if we, if we live together as long as we're in love. You buy a false story that the world teaches rather than following the commands of God. Jeremiah asks, will you, will you commit perjury? We gladly gossip about those who don't measure up to our own standards. We're quick to complain, but slow to pursue reconciliation and face-to-face conversations. Jeremiah asks, will you follow after other gods? Will you offer incense to Baal? And we devote our lives to the false gods, not named Baal, but the false gods of success and power and pleasure. Sinful thinking leads to sinful actions, and it leads to, again, that presumption. Look at verse 10. The people show up in the temple, unrepentant sinners, continuing down a path of disobedience against God, and they say, we're safe. We're safe because we're here at the temple. They're treated like like criminals using the temple as a safe house. They go out and commit crimes and then come hide in the temple. Oh, we'll be safe here. It doesn't matter what we do. They've, they've divorced the truth 
that when the gospel changes your heart, the gospel should change your life. And when you came in today, maybe your, your list wouldn't be exactly Jeremiah's in verse 9, but, but if you had to characterize Christians, people that claim to follow God, your list would look a lot like his. People that, are, that, that claim to, to be these, these good people that follow the Ten Commandments, and yet I know in their hearts they break them all. I see it in my workplace. I see it in my neighborhood. I see it in my own family. Someone, you might be thinking, who claims to be a Christian and yet is, is just a hypocrite. Well, here's, here's the truth. Jeremiah agrees with you. Hypocrisy is a problem in the church. But, but for you, you might be tempted that your solution to hypocrisy is to just to dump religion altogether. Say, so it doesn't have anything to do with me. But, but what's Jeremiah's solution? Reform your ways. Live like a Christian should really live. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect in your life. It means when you, when you steal and when you murder, when you commit adultery and perjury, when you burn incense and follow after other gods, you will come to God in repentance. You'll turn from sin and say, God, I'm a sinner, but I need your grace. See, the solution to, to hypocrisy is not perfection. The solution to hypocrisy is honesty. Being honest about our brokenness Admitting that we as Christians don't live up to God's standards, but by God's grace then, working to change our lives. By the power of God's Spirit, strengthening us to say no to temptation, to turn from sin. We show up to God broken people, and he begins to piece us back together by his strength. Because Judah here is living, the the nation, the people of God, Judah is living under the delusion that God's covenant blessings could be divorced from covenant obedience. They, they think that if, if I just go through these motions, it doesn't matter how I live. Phil Riken, a, a, a pastor, he summarizes Jeremiah's sermon, religious observance without moral obedience cannot save. Religious observance without moral obedience cannot save. Now, now we need to be careful We are not saying that moral obedience saves you. No. We are saved by grace. God graciously showing up in the temple. God willingly accepting sacrifices to atone for sin. But we presume upon God's grace if we think it doesn't matter how we live. If we can willfully, even joyfully, break the Ten Commandments, and then wander into church as if nothing has happened. Then we're presuming upon God. And so we need to hear Jeremiah's warning to us, reform your ways, reform your actions. Jeremiah then then concludes his sermon here. Look at verse 12, by, by pointing out Israel's sinful history. Israel, the, the nation to the north. Under the the reign of of David and Solomon, it was all one nation. But in the rebellion of David's grandson, the the nation of Israel is separated. But it has been destroyed. And so Jeremiah ends with a a sermon illustration, asking the people to to imagine themselves walking through this, this 
village of Shiloh, a place where God was first worshipped when the people came into the land. The, the Ark of the Covenant was there. And yet now, if you were to walk through Shiloh, Jeremiah is saying, what would you see? Nothing. Rubble. Buildings torn down. 150 years worth of decay here because this city is no more. This is the, the problem of, of Israel's history. We see it again at the end of the chapter where, where God goes farther back than just to the nation of, of Israel but goes all the way back to their, their rescue from Egypt. Look at verse 22. God says, When I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I didn't just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. But look at verse 24. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. So this warning from Israel's history is a warning of sinful failure. God says, as I have punished sin in the past, so I will punish your sin. Verse 14, therefore what I did to Shiloh, I now will do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in. Destruction is certain because the people will not listen nor reform their ways. The people will not repent. It is a tragic sermon conclusion. Everything has been destroyed because of sin. We are helpless in ourselves. We need God to graciously provide. We need access to God's temple. We need God's sacrifices to be offered for us. We need a Savior who can obey where Israel disobeyed. God's promises here are conditional. If you obey, then you will live here. Conditional in the sense that, that to experience the fullness of God's blessing requires us to actually follow after God. But all throughout Scripture, these promises are also unconditional. There is nothing Israel can do to make God give up on his promise. The faithless sons of David will not destroy the promise of an everlasting kingdom. And so there is another prophet who, who continues this sermon. Because if we conclude with Jeremiah's conclusion, then we are left without hope. But Jesus, centuries later, will stand in the rebuilt temple. The temple that was destroyed, the people sent into exile, but now has been rebuilt. J Jesus himself will stand in the temple and continue Jeremiah's sermon. Jesus quotes from this sermon when he goes in on that last week of his life, on the, the triumphal entry, he enters Jerusalem. He clears out the temple of, of, of this den of robbers, he says. Pulling that, that quote here from Jeremiah's sermon. Saying, I am the one who has come to cleanse the temple. Not simply this physical temple, but the spiritual temple, he tells us, of his own body that will be offered for us. 
And we see in Jesus how our sin is turned against him, but he perfectly obeys God. Jeremiah asks, will you steal? And yet Jesus, think of it, everything in the universe belongs to him. Everything that exists, exists because of him, and yet he freely gives it away. Jesus gives up everything. In his ministry, he's entirely dependent upon other people for food and for shelter. And in his death on the cross, his last possessions are stolen from him. Jeremiah says, will you murder? And the people will murder Jesus. But while he was mocked and abused, he did not respond in anger, but in love and compassion. Will you commit adultery, we're asked. Now Jesus is accused of these kinds of things, of hanging out with sinners and prostitutes. And yet, every time he interacted with someone, he did so with love and honesty. He dealt with every woman in his life with love and compassion and purity. Jesus was faithful, yet in his death, he was stripped of all of his clothing, exposed to a shameful death on the cross. Jeremiah asks, will you commit perjury? And we have the Savior who comes and always speaks the truth. And yet he's condemned to death because men will perjure themselves against him. Jeremiah asks, will you father other, other, other gods? Will you offer incense to Baal? And it, Jesus, Jesus willingly follows the true God, his Father in heaven. And where will he follow him? To the cross. We know in our chapter, verse 27, that the people here won't, won't even listen to Jeremiah's sermon. But, but actually, this sermon is repeated in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 26, we get a, a summary of it. And this is the reaction. Not only do the people not listen to Jeremiah, but in Jeremiah chapter 26, when, he, when, this, when the, the story of the sermon is retold, we find out that the, the leaders of the people, the priests and the prophets, seized Jeremiah and said, you must die. They cry out, this man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against our city. Now, Jeremiah would survive. But Jesus would not. Jesus stands in the temple to conclude Jeremiah's sermon. Judgment has come. And it falls on Jesus. Jeremiah lets us picture the the rubble of Shiloh, the rubble that will come on Jerusalem. Jesus walks into that rubble, the rubble of our lives and our sin and our story. He shows us what it looks like to follow God in love, to turn from sin, to live for righteousness, to receive forgiveness and new life. Jesus corrects our sinful thinking by his grace. Jesus corrects our sinful behavior, our actions, by transforming us, by giving us the gift of his spirit. He calls us to obedience. And Jesus offers us a new history. His. His story of perfect obedience. His willing sacrifice on our behalf. Jeremiah calls us 
to reform our lives. And Jesus makes it possible in his death and resurrection. Let's pray together. Lord, as we, as we look at our own hearts, Father, we, we admit our disgust at our rebellion, our sinfulness, our brokenness. Lord, expose in us the hypocrisy which turns us away from following you, which harms the witness of the church. Father in heaven, let us reform our ways in true repentance, turning from sin and and following after you. Lord, give us the faith to believe. Lord, we rejoice that, that Jesus willingly died in our place, paying the penalty for our sins, that Jesus lived a life of obedience so that he could be our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. So, Father, we rejoice in Jesus. Send us as a church with the the bold and powerful witness of the gospel. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.